Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, Adam, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Of course, the answer is yes. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cast cursed than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you uh, and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you shall bruise her head or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and you have taken and eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth to you and you shall eat of the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. If you would like to know why the world is such a broken, disordered place, it all begins here. Up to this point, we know that creation has been good. We've seen that God made everything, sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, the sky, the water, the animals, even made Adam. And we saw there is one thing that was not good. Adam alone by himself, but even that was part of God's plan. And God made a helper comparable to him, Eve. And he put them in this beautiful garden and said, I have given you everything here. Just work here. It's perfect for you. But there's only one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have the access to the tree of life itself. But to the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And in this passage, we see the descent or the fall of man. And I, and I kind of have four things here that I think we see in sequ- sequence. We have deception, disobedience, disorder, and death. And ultimately, though we did not read these verses, Adam and Eve are exiled from the very source of life, God and his garden. That's what we will see today. This descent into destruction and death, beginning with deception, followed by their disobedience, followed by complete disorder in the, in, in, within them and in the world around them, and ultimately the promise of death. And yes, you know, as a pastor, I don't always try to alliterate things, but sometimes it just falls into your lap and it's like, okay, <laughs> you've got to go with it. it. does help us remember. And today we'll see this, this descent through these four things. So let's begin with deception. We already read these verses. Very quickly, before long, God's good paradise is invaded by an enemy, the great deceiver himself. Now, interestingly, we see this serpent appear in the story. And the text portrays this serpent almost as kind of a normal animal. There's no discussion in this passage about any kind of supernatural or beyond natural explanation of this serpent. It's just a serpent, and it's described as cunning and crafty. There's no allusion to some sort of greater power speaking through the snake. 
Uh, and to be honest, this has caused some confusion and difficulty interpretation and difficult interpretations throughout church history. There's no, if you look through here, there's no clear source of evil in this story. Evil just kind of arises. <laughs> it does not originate with God. God does not come down and tempt mankind. It does not even originate solely with mankind. Adam and Eve, Eve is deceived by the serpent. The Genesis story does not give an explicit origin of the serpent, but only, interestingly, later speaks of its destiny. But narrative clues in this passage and others point to something more going on here. First, the serpent's wisdom. And he is able to speak far beyond uh, anything the Bible demonstrates for animals. Some people have asked, you know, come up with ideas, you know, oh, maybe animals before the fall could, could speak. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I think there's a difference between created animals and people made in the image of God. So we never see other animals speaking except when God miraculously does so, like, you know, Balaam's donkey. Uh, but that's not a normal thing. And I think the same, we could apply the same here, that this serpent, the fact that he's speaking and with such cunning and wisdom is a clue to the reader. There's something more here. This is not just a normal animal. Secondly, as we will see later, the curse of this serpent and its prophesied doom points and motions our mind to something greater than just simple physical destruction. We'll see the, the promise of destruction for the serpent, and I, and I really doubt, and I don't think we can hold to the fact that, oh, that the destruction of the serpent is just, you know, when we kill snakes, you know. <laughs> I remember as uh, when I was at Camp Ironwood, where we're going with some of the leaders, you know, uh, a lot of teens and kids there. And so whenever a snake, a rattlesnake or any other kind of snake would show up, they didn't want to freak anybody out. So they would always tell us there was a code word that you would call in on the radio and you would say, hey, I'm over by this cabin. I need you to bring a shovel. That was the code word. Bring a shovel. And that was the code for snake. Someone come and kill that thing with a shovel. You know, every time we did that, I don't think we were like, yeah, that's Genesis three right there. Crush that serpent's head. I, I mean, you know, maybe a little bit prophetically, but there is something more than just a simple physical destruction or physical death of this serpent. Rather, it kind of sets up this cosmic battle between the serpent and his seed and the seed of the woman. For instance, John in the book of Revelation clearly alludes to the serpent in Eden. Listen to Revelation 12, verse 9. This is during the time of Satan's rule on earth so that, and, and his destruction. So the great dragon was cast out of heaven, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so I think that we can clearly and uh, without shame say that this serpent whether he is a manifestation of Satan or simply empowered by Satan. This is Satan speaking to mankind. And if you read through the rest of the Bible, you will see that Satan and his sin and rebellion against God probably even took place before even creation or soon thereafter. But he comes with this great deception for Eve. He comes and does three things primarily in this deception to Eve. First of all, he questions God's word. The deceiver begins his assault by undermining the word and command of God. Remember that God's word is responsible for the whole created order. It represents God's active power and command over all his creation. How did God create the world? With his speaking, with his word. Adam and Eve had been given a mandate to obey their good God. Yet this is where Satan attacks. He is subtle, he's cunning, and starts with a simple question. What does he ask Eve first? Hey, Eve, has God really said that you cannot eat of this fruit? You can almost hear the incredulous tone. Did God really say that? Wow. Many of you have probably heard this sort of question from people, <laughs> or even your own heart before. I've been asked things, hey, does God really say this? And a lot of times those people are not sincerely asking to know so they can obey, but almost in a way to say, wow, that's kind of crazy that God would say that or give you that command. This doesn't come from a teachable spirit, but from a heart that seeks to judge for themselves whether God's standard is reasonable. In fact, that is the serpent's angle all along. He takes the divine command of God to not the knowledge of good and evil, and subjects it to Eve's judgment. Instead of placing God's word over us, 
The tempter always places us in a place of judgment over God's word. Eve rightly responds with God's command. She says, yes, God has told us we can eat of any tree of the garden except this tree. Yet she also kind of adds additional commands that God had not given, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Now, perhaps Eve was simply assuming, uh, or maybe it was just a logical rule that they came along. You know, it makes sense. God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of it. So they probably thought naturally, I can imagine myself doing this. You know, hey, God doesn't want us to eat it, so let's just not touch it. He probably doesn't want us to touch it either. Either, Though that is not explicit in God's command. Satan first questions God's word. That is always the beginning of the deception, the temptation of Satan. Secondly, we see that the great deceiver, the serpent, contradicts God's warnings. The great deceiver then turns to brazenly contradicting God's revelation. He starts with a simple question. Hey, has God really said this? And when he gets the answer, what is his response? You will not surely die. What had God told Adam back in chapter 2 when he made Adam? If you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And what does the serpent say? No, you will not die. Satan has from the beginning told humanity that God's promised consequences will not happen. God promises that sin leads to death. Yet Satan, the devil, puts forth sin as a source of true life. God says, other promises, God says in Psalm 1, Blessed, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. God says, blessed are those people who follow and love God's word and his law. Yet Satan says that real blessing comes from abandoning God's word and following your own wisdom. God promises that freedom is found in Jesus and following him. Yet the serpent still to this day proclaims that freedom is found in yourself. It doesn't take much imagination to think of these exact arguments in our culture today. Has God really said that you can't do these things? And hey, you know, God promised that these lead to destruction and death, but no, they don't. When you hear someone undermine God's word by subjecting it to your own judgment, saying, hey, you can decide what God, if, if God's word is true here. You can decide what's really accurate. Or by flatly contradictory, that is the voice of the serpent from the garden. Satan, that is who you hear. The serpent was cunning, seemingly wise, and the counsel from his mouth set Eve on a course of destruction. So do not be deceived by him. And lastly, the serpent challenges God's goodness and holiness. He says, you will not surely die. He says, four, verse five, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the argument here? God has not forbidden this tree from you because it's bad for you. He has forbidden this from you because it is actually good for you. And he is holding it back. Satan always attacks God's goodness in your life to make you doubt God. The serpent declared to Eve that God is not good because God was withholding something good from her. for Not for her own benefit, but for God's own selfish hoarding. And think about it. What had God given Adam and Eve? Literally the whole world. Everything that they could imagine. There's only one thing that he held back. And that was enough to deceive Eve into thinking that God was not good because he was withholding from her. The serpent presented God not as loving and good and faithful, but as selfish, as paranoid, and as a liar to her. God had created all Eve could see, and even Adam and Eve themselves. Yet she still believed, through this deception, that God was selfishly withholding blessing from her. No number of gifts and blessings from God will convince someone who's a rebel, that God is good. When people give you, and even our own hearts, let's just put it that way, when other people, but even most, when we ourselves, when you hear that voice from your own heart saying, God is not good because you don't have this, 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 and this. There's no number of gifts. There's no number of good things God could do for you that would override that in our own natural sin. 
Even Eve, who was not sinful, was innocent, and had all of the world at her fingertips, still believed it. Secondly, first, the serpent challenged, saying God is not good because he's withholding this from you. Secondly, the serpent offered Eve a false path to deification. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Our brother shared with us that the LDS Mormon church official doctrine, it sounds very much like Christian belief, but it's not. Do you know what the official church doctrine is? That a man could become God. That is the ultimate path of glorification, the ultimate end. If you are the the best Mormon, if you follow the church perfectly, and they even said, some of the previous prophet has said, as God is, man may become. And there is the, the official doctrine that our God was once a man who became God. And that is exactly what Satan says here. Hey, you do this, you can become like God. He promised that disobedience would lead to enlightenment and exaltation, even to the place of God himself. Yet what did that sin lead to? Not eye-opening wisdom and exaltation, but to blindness and to total anarchy in the world. This is what Satan's lies lead to. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. Satan promised sight, it delivers blindness. Eve Eve was deceived. She was overcome and succumbed to this blindness of Satan. The serpent offered Eve the opportunity for moral autonomy. You can decide what's true for you. You can exalt yourself. You can transcend beyond God's guidelines and boundaries and become your own God. But in overthrowing God, she invited a true tyrant to rule over her, the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians says. Satan. We, can, we are never truly free in and of ourselves. We always have a master. Either it's a good master or it's an evil master. She was promised freedom but received bondage to sin and Satan. She was promised exaltation but received only destruction. Beware the deceptions of Satan. He is still speaking today. He's still like a roaring lion walking about seeking who he may devour. And the voices and the ideas and beliefs in our culture are still reflecting these same deceptions. And this leads, this deception leads to disobedience. What does Eve see? She looks at the the tree and having been deceived by Satan's lies, by his argumentation, she looks at this fruit and sees three things. First of all, she sees that it was good for food. You might say self-gratification. Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. Notice she was determining what was good in a world defined by God's declaration of good. What has God called all of creation? He looked at everything and saw that it was. Yet Eve looks at the one thing God has withheld and said, that looks good. And this desire to eat for food is not unnatural. In and of itself, it's not sinful. God had made them to eat food. He even provided many trees to eat of this fruit. And so much of the temptation still to this day originates in good natural desires that are twisted for self-satisfaction or pleasure. The desire for food was normal and natural, yet she looked to the one tree that was forbidden to fulfill that desire. And for us today, is that not still the case? Is food a good and natural thing? I do like food. Okay, I do. But turned into total self-satisfaction without borders, it transforms into gluttony. Is sleep necessary and good? Some people say, no, I don't need to sleep. They're foolish. (laughs) Sleep is good. Yet can it not easily turn into laziness? As we saw last week, Human sexuality is a good and gift from the Lord. It is a blessing. Yet, how easily can it be turned to one's own pleasure? And outside of God's appointed boundaries, it turns into sin, destruction. Our natural desires must be submitted to God's standards. It feels right, will not suffice in the day of judgment. You might say this self-satisfaction was what you might call the lust of the flesh. And secondly, 
we see possessions for self. It was, what else did she see? It was pleasant to the eyes. Secondly, Eve saw that the fruit was good looking. Covetousness is the desire for that which we do not have. It is rooted in discontent. God has withheld this good thing from me and I desire to have it. And how much of our society screams discontent and covetousness? I think covetousness is something that is such a biblical concept that we don't talk a lot in our culture because our entire culture, it's like, we, it's like the fish in the water. <laughs> the fish doesn't even notice that there's water because they're so used to it. And I think that in our culture today, covetousness is just the water we live in that it's almost hard to see. Nearly all of advertising is designed to trigger a covetous response. There are whole billions of dollars of industry that are designed and think solely of how do we make people covet that what we are selling. The Super Bowl was recent. Think of how much advertising agencies pay for Super Bowl commercials. I'm not sure of this year, but I know in the past it's been, you know, $5 million for 30 seconds. Because it's so effective in getting people to buy their products to desire that which they do not have, that it's worth it. Remember next time you see something that is so attractive to you, but that God has withheld from you, that discontent and covetousness is a temptation from the very beginning, from Eve. She saw it and it looked nice. And sometimes that's as simple as it is. We look at things and we say, man, that's a nice looking thing. I want that thing. And we build it within our hearts saying, oh man, I could do this with it. Oh, if I had it, man, think of the ministry I could do. It's easy to deceive ourselves into desiring that which God has withheld from us. You might say the lust of the eyes. And lastly, self-glorification. And a tree desirable to make one wise. As the serpent had offered Eve enlightenment and deification, Eve saw that for herself, the appeal of the fruit that would make one wise. What does Proverbs say? What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Yet here Eve is seeking disobedience to her creator as the source of wisdom. She seeks to be to to uh, she is enticed by the pursuit of wisdom apart from God to become something greater than God intended, the pride of self glorification, to transcend God's boundaries. The echo of this is heard again in chapter eleven of Genesis. Listen, Genesis eleven four, and they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the whole earth." This is the same attitude that leads to the Tower of Babel and in our own hearts so often. I want to be something greater than God has intended me to be. I want wisdom apart from God's wisdom. I want something greater. And still today, you may be tempted to exalt yourself above God's appointed station. Do you ever believe that you could achieve more if you followed your own path rather than obeying God? Do you ever... Are you ever tempted to believe that submission to God's plan is a demotion in your life? You know, I remember as a teenager, transparent thoughts. I remember as a teenager thinking, oh, you know, yeah, I kind of want to serve the Lord. But man, if I go and submit to God's will, I might like have to go be a missionary somewhere else in some terrible country. Like, oh, yeah, service for God. It's like, well, I guess we got to suffer, right? You know, that's sometimes our view. Well, I know we got to suffer for it. But man, if we went our own way, we could achieve so much more. But people are, that's the way our world thinks. You'll be tempted by this, even if you're in a business context. You know, hey, if you worked Sundays instead of going to church, you could get so much more done. You could make so much more money. This is the message of our world. And these three temptations are really the root of almost all temptations. Uh, the Apostle John recognizes this in 1 John 2, 15 and 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And what do we see here? It was good for food. I think we can easily say that's the lust of the flesh, the physical desires that lead us astray. It was pleasant to the eyes. It's the lust of things we see, covetousness, and a tree desirable to make one wise. You might say the pride 
of life. Eve gives in to these temptations and then immediately turns to Adam to include him in her sin. Often those who pursue sin seek others to draw with them into it. And sadly, Adam is presented with zero agency in this story, meaning not that he didn't, he couldn't have, but he didn't act. There's some discussion. It's, it's not for certain the text doesn't demand it, whether Adam was physically at there present and right by her side, or if he was with her in another part of the garden. I do believe, though, personally, that Adam was there. Because the way the story reads, I think that's what it's indicating to me. Eve is right there. She takes it and she gives it to Adam. He's close by, at least. And he is passive. Completely passive. What's Adam been doing this whole time during the story? And later on, in 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul states that Adam himself was not deceived, but sinned regardless. The fact that he was not deceived is not an excuse. It's not like Adam was better off because he was not deceived. It's actually worse because it heightens his responsibility. He knew what he was doing and still took the fruit from Eve to eat it. Kent Hughes writes, Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open without hesitation. His sin was freighted with a sinful self-interest. He had watched Eve take the fruit and nothing happened to her. He sinned willfully, assuming that there would be no consequences. Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. And the fall from here on is assured. Like you've been on a roller coaster where you like inch, 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 inch up to the top, and you're inching, and all of a sudden it's like you're hanging in the air, and all of a sudden it's like down. That's where we are right now. That roller coaster of sin and destruction, it's going down, and there's no stopping it from here on out. Beware the temptations of your own heart. And what does that lead to? Their sin, it leads to disorder. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What a tragic verse. Here are these perfect people in a perfect world, in a perfect garden, perfect relationship with God. And because of their sin, all of a sudden, They are seeking to hide from one another and from God because they knew their guilt and their shame. The results are immediate and dire. The serpent had promised enlightenment. Your eyes will be opened. And what does verse 7 say? Oh, their eyes were opened, but in a twisted, cruel version. They did not receive sight to greater, more beautiful things, but instead they were deeply aware of their own nakedness and were filled with shame. Don't ever listen to Satan when he says that you need to experience sin firsthand to know if it's good or bad. Sin only brings shame and sorrow, not joy. Not all knowledge is good and not all ignorance is bad. Adam and Eve would have been way better off not having the experience of knowing the evil part of good and evil firsthand. Adam and Eve, through their sin, brought disorder into the great ordered creation that God had made. We see that first there's disorder in that they they have disunion with God. Sin brought guilt and caused them to hide from God. They hear the voice of God coming, and instead of running to him with joy and in fellowship, what do they do? They run and hide. Where there had been communion and fellowship, now comes fear and shame. Their relationship with God was forever disrupted. They sought to cover themselves with their own creation. Clothes made from leaves. And still, do we naturally seek to cover ourselves with our own works, which do nothing to hide our guilt from God? Sin changed their relationship with God from joy to judgment, from fellowship to discipline. Nothing they could do or provide could undo this sin and their own rebellion. They could not cover themselves or hide from God's face. Even here, though, God does not approach them with thundering condemnation, but with a questioning approach of a loving Father. What do they deserve? What has God promised? Death. Did God have to come looking for them? (laughs) Could have killed them on the spot. Yet we see even already God's grace. He approaches them and asks, gives them a chance. With anybody with kids knows what this is like. You know what your kid did. They think you're dumb, but you're not. You know what they did. But you're, you're talking with them, asking them, giving them a chance to understand and to confess. 
Yet their guilt turns this fatherly approach into an approach of fear where they hide. Nothing you can do either can remove that holy gaze of God from you and your guilt. No clothing you can create, no place you can go, no good deed can remove your sin either. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, you, their descendant, must deal with the God of holy and righteous judgment. Not only did the introduction of sin into their hearts in the world disrupt their relationship with God, it also brought dysfunction with one another. Let's look at the curse that God lays on them in verse 12 and 13. Well, this is actually before that curse. God asked, Adam, why are you hiding? Who told you that you were naked? And what does Adam do? Oh, yes, it's me, Lord. It's me. I am the one who has sinned. That's not his response. He immediately turns and says, it is the woman whom you gave to me. She gave it to me and I ate. It's not my fault, God. Sin introduced this immediate, it's like instantaneous, natural, blame shifting and self-preservation. And I think we have to remember, what had God told Adam? Hey, if you eat this tree, what's going to happen? And so what does Adam say? Hey, if you're going to kill anybody... And is that the loving response that men should have for their wives? Hey, I'm going to push you in front of the bullet. That's what Adam's trying to do, to preserve himself. Whereas God had created them to help and serve together, they now instinctively reach not for self-sacrifice, but for self-preservation. Adam is questioned by God about his sin, and Adam knows that stand, the, the, the stated consequence, death. And he says, hey, Eve's the one who's really at fault here. He offers her up for judgment and in doing so even indicts God. Hey, God, it's really your fault because you're the one that made her and you're the one that gave her to me. And what does Eve do? She just follows right along. Adam's, Adam's example. Eve says, look, God, it's not me. It's the serpent which you created. Sin introduced this shifting blame and self-preservation. And we still do this today. I will sacrifice you, even in a marriage, I will sacrifice you so that I can continue to do what I want to do. And ultimately, what do we all do? We blame our creator. God, you're the one that made me this way. I'm just doing, I'm just living the way that you made me to be. If God didn't give me these, this circumstance, I wouldn't have made that decision. And that is still the same approach from the garden. It also introduced relationship competition and domination. Look down at uh, verse 16. To the woman, God says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And in God's curse upon Eve, we see the seed of relationship competition and domination. He says, your desire will be for your husband. Now, I have to admit, there is much discussion over exactly what this means, this desire to your husband. But I agree. I think that the best approach is to let uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 help us here. Genesis 4, 7 uses these same words, desire and rule, in, in a comparison. And it's to Cain. When God speaks to Cain after Cain's sin, and he says, if you do well, God says, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And what does God say here? Verse chapter four, verse seven, and it's sin, it's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. I think that influences our interpretation. Eve and her, all her daughters are destined naturally to desire to have mastery over their husbands. But in response, Men will rule even harshly, even to dominate them. The seeds of this competition between men and, and, and husband and wife, men and women, and the nom- and domination and ultimately even abuse originate from the sin of Adam and Eve. Now, we know that through the grace of God and even through common grace, people can overcome this, but this is the natural bent. And it's not hard to see examples of this. <laughs> Just read any amount of history. It's easy to think, yep, that's the natural way people go, apart from the Lord. This is the natural course of this current world, relationship dysfunction. The relationship between humanity and God and between men and women have been disrupted and disordered. Added to that, it is even nature, the created order, which will act against humanity's efforts 
to tame it. We see the promise of difficult toil in all of life. Back in verse 16, what does God say to the woman? He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Just from observation, not from firsthand experience, why is it called labor and delivery? Because it's a lot of work. It is painful and hard toil. And this blessing of God, children, new life, you would expect it to be a joy and a happy thing, and it is. But what comes with it? Sorrow, pain, difficulty. And you know, in our day and age, it's it's more unusual that women die during childbirth, but through all of history, what was very normal for women to die is that hard. Thankfully, that is less common in our in our country today than it has been any time in history. This it is no longer an easy blessing from God. Now the gift of God comes through hard, intense work and pain. And throughout history, we see that it's dangerous, it is deadly, even. The irony. Because of sin, the beginning of a new life so often caused the death of the mother, so often. We also see for man, not just women, pain and toil, difficult toil and childbearing. Look at, look at Adam's curse, verse 17. Then, Adam's, he said to them, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of, the knowledge, the tree of which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life. First note that Adam is rebuked by God for listening to Eve instead of to God's command. Remember earlier, we noted that Eve was deceived, but Adam ate willingly. And here, who is the one rebuked harshly? Adam. This rebuke is for failing to obey God's voice. But for Adam and his work, it would be labor, difficult and painful. Nature would no longer be a willing recipient of Adam's work. Instead, because of his sin, the ground, even the ground itself, would resist him and fight against him. All of nature falls into disorder under this curse, under God's curse because of sin. Work is now a burden and a source of pain. And so what are the two things we see right now? We see pain, difficult toil in childbearing and difficult toil in work and taming the earth. And what was God's command back in Genesis chapter one? Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see both sides? Childbearing, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, work. Here are God's two commands to Adam and Eve and what now are hard work and labor that are, that are against resistance? Obeying God. God's mandate for Adam and Eve would now only be a source of sorrow and pain rather than blessing and joy. And the final consequence of sin, we've seen disorder. Now we see ultimately death. Verses 17. We see promised death here. I'm going to go back to verse 17. Then, then he said, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. If you live forever, there's no end to all the days. Yet now there is. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God promises death. To Adam. What he God had promised, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And what does he fulfill? His word. He says, This is true. You've eaten of it, you will die. God's word is always true. I just wanted to point out this is a little bit of a nerdy thing, but this is just kind of Hebrew poetry a little bit here. You'll notice some parallels. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And what is the middle that's paralleled right next to each other? You are taken out of the dust. That's what you are. You're going back to the ground. Death is the end of Adam's toil. And so it is for all his descendants. You and me, we are nothing more than dust. Animated by God's life, and we are destined to return to that ground once again. 
I believe that if possible, it's better as a Christian to be buried as a instead of cremated uh, because of the symbolism of the resurrection. But you know what? Given enough time, what happens to anybody that's put in the ground? It's gone. Back to dust. We are all temporary destined for death. So God promises death. Also, look in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. You'll notice Satan did not completely lie. He just partly lied. He said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what does God say? They have become like us, knowing good and evil. And in some way, they had, but only to destruction. And he says, now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword was turned every way to guard the tree of life. They do now know evil by experience and have paid the price for that knowledge. When God had placed them in the garden, he presented them with two, two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As long as they remained in obedience, they had access to free access to this tree of life. Yet now God sees their fallen, sinful state and recognizes that eternal life is no longer rightfully theirs. So God exiles them from his beautiful garden and denies them access to the source of life, God's source of life, the tree. Adam and Eve now lived in a world of disorder, characterized by disobedience and deception, and destined for death. What did God say? In the day that you eat of it, did they truly die? Yes, they died spiritually, being separated and cut off from all fellowship with their creator. They also died physically and that the inevitable process of death within them had begun and was destined. And this is the world they created for all of their descendants. This is the spiritual condition they passed to all their children, even down to us. And this is the destiny that each of us has inherited. Just like them, we now live in a world deceived by the God of this age the old serpent, disordered and chaotic. We just like them choose rebellion and disobedience to our creator. And we like them are naturally cut off from the fellowship with God and from the source of eternal life. The world is cursed and we are fallen. That's a lot of darkness. Yet, even in the midst of a dark and tragic passage, God in his grace gives a glimmer of hope. I believe this fact demonstrates the grace of God. I think he knows us. He knows the despair that Adam and Eve would face. I can only think of the despair that I would feel if I were in their place. And I I don't think I can even comprehend it fully. How many of us despair just living in the world, even though we're used to it? We know nothing else. Imagine the despair they felt coming from the perfect world. He does not leave them hopeless, but gives them something to cling to. And there's the fifth one. Sorry, I said four, but fifth, he promises a deliverer. And two things, he promises just justice on that tempter, the serpent. God in his curse on the serpent provides a blessed hope of justice. Once again, if we read this in verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Is this really simply a promise to a physical animal? Just a snake. And every time, like I said, every time we take that shovel and we kill, we're, we're filling that promise. I don't think we can say that. I think verse 15 makes it clear that something greater that a physical snake is the ultimate target of this curse. The serpent either stands in place or is animated by a greater being, God's enemy, Satan. For all history, this curse on the serpent has opened a box of speculation. You know, you might have read some of it. You know, I've, I've heard people talk about, what, what did the snakes do before the fall? Did they fly? Were they dragons? You know, did they have two legs? They have four legs? And we could go on and on about that. I don't think the Bible gives us an answer. I will tell you, though, I believe personally that it is not, this curse did not change the nature of the snake as much as give a symbolic meaning to this, what the snake already was like. If you believe the snake had wings or, or, or legs, you're not, you're not unorthodox. You're not you know, a heretic. I just would disagree with you. But 
just like, think back to, to Noah, just like the rainbow. It hadn't rained, but did the physical things that cause rainbows exist? Yeah, but God gives special prominence and symbol, symbolism to this rainbow. And I think this is similar to the snake. This physical characteristics now communicate forever the curse on God's creation. Eating dust signifies humiliation. The image was so fitting. This snake had exalted itself above man, therefore it would go upon its belly, the lowest of all the animals. And enmity, there's enmity here, hostility experienced in war, an ongoing battle, a war between deceiver and deceived. Where Eve had been deceived, she would be vindicated by her own descendants. The word, word seed or descendant is key throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. This is the first promise in the Bible. Then as you continue throughout Genesis, you see over and over again, God working to deliver a promised seed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. These are the promised descendants. And through bearing children, Eve would be vindicated. And we see in the New Testament, ultimately, that this nation, Israel, of descendants would, be, would, be, would culminate and be represented by one man, Jesus. This is the promised deliverer, the vindicator for humanity who would destroy the deceiver who introduced rebellion into God's creation. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah, the son of Seth, the son of Adam and Eve. He has crushed the serpent's head on the cross. And God gives Adam and Eve a glimmer, a single ray of hope in a world thrown into darkness. And while here in this passage, the judgment is focused on the destruction of the serpent, we know from other passages that Jesus will also undo all the effects of sin and the curse eventually. Where Adam sinned and brought sin and death, Jesus obeyed completely the commands of God and brings life. Adam, tempted in a perfect garden. Jesus is tempted by Satan himself once again in a wilderness. Adam was, had every other tree to eat from. Jesus had fasted 40 days in the wilderness before his temptation. Adam had every opportunity for success and failed. Jesus had every obstacle yet succeeded. And just as we are naturally dead because we are descendants of Adam, you can be made alive in Christ because of his obedience. Notice in verse 20 and 21, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Despite the promises of death, what does Adam call Eve? What What does Adam call his wife? Eve the mother of those who will live. Even after receiving a death sentence, I think Adam clings to the hope and the grace of God and allowing life to continue. And then secondly, God demonstrates grace again by covering them, providing a covering. Verse 22, then the, God, then the Lord God said, behold them, uh, verse still in 21, and also Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Their attempts to cover themselves were necessary, but they could never succeed for themselves. God demonstrated the required payment for this covering, the death of an animal. How awful it must have been for Adam and Eve to witness this first death of any of God's creatures. And it was because of their own sin. As we saw in Hebrews, requires death. But God provided a covering for them. God demonstrated that sin always results in death with a, with a visual picture to Adam and Eve, and that while they would die, another in some way could die in their place, just as Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice for sin. This is like a little glimmer that opens into a whole world throughout the, the Bible. God demonstrated that he, on only he, could provide a covering for sin, and that Adam and Eve's attempts to cover themselves with their own works were useless. Just as Jesus provides the covering for sin by his death on the cross, no work of your own, No fig leaves you could sew together could ever hide you from God's judgment. Only God's provided covering in Jesus. The robe of Christ's righteousness that God places on us, on you, can spare you. God demonstrated that there was hope for Adam and Eve, and in a world of disorder and death, there is hope for you today. And to finish, I want to read a few verses. Romans 5. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. 
For if by one man's offense, many died, how much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who has sinned, for judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, oh, I think I'm repeating. Yes. Hope in God's deliverer. Do not despair. Do not despair in a world of disorder and death but hope in God's deliver, rest in Christ. And finally, we've seen Adam and Eve exiled from that tree of life. And yet, what do we see at the end of time for those who are in Jesus? In Revelation 22, and heaven, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was a tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruits every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. And there were, there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and he shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. We see the world of disorder and death and destruction that Adam and Eve led us to and that gave to us that we can do nothing about. And you might be tempted to despair in this life because of the darkness and the death and the disorder. But God gives hope just as he gave hope to Adam and Eve. There is a deliverer. We've seen deception, disobedience, disorder, death, but ultimately hope in God's deliverer. Jesus for salvation. Let God clothe you in his righteousness and look forward to that day when access to the tree of life is renewed. Not in an old garden, but in a new temple, a new earth. Cling to Christ. Father, thank you for this day. I pray that you would